Hi there, and welcome to Even If, a weekly podcast about standing firm when life is shaking. I'm your host, Kelly Strife. Strife rhymes with wife. And together, we're finding the courage to approach uncertain and unwanted seasons of life through a posture of faith that stands firm and declares, even if he doesn't, he is still good. People say a lot of things to you after you lose a child. I could probably do a whole episode on that, and maybe one day I will. I'll do an episode on all the things people said and did, and what was helpful, and what wasn't, and what things were actually really hurtful. But I'll tell you this, through all the things people said and did, we were always so grateful for the effort. And just a bonus tip here, don't be so worried about saying the wrong thing that you don't say anything. The wrong thing is better than nothing. I'm sorry, or I'm thinking about you, or I'm so sad for you. Those are all really great places to start if you're at a loss. But one of the things that was actually really hurtful, that stung me the most when people said it to me, and it took me a while to figure out why, is when people would say things like, I couldn't believe in God if that happened to me. I don't know how you do it. I couldn't believe God was good if he let my child die. And let me interpret, because for the most part, they meant that as a compliment. What they were actually trying to say was, I admire you. I'm inspired by you. I'm not sure I would be strong enough to make it through this. And that's a whole other conversation about who's strong enough to make it through. We'll get into that sometime too. But they really meant well when they said those words. But it got under my skin and it stung and it took me a while to figure out why. And finally, I realized that it was because what I heard when they said that, what I heard was, I love my children too much to surrender them. I love my children too much to trust God if they died. My children must matter more to me than yours did to you. And I know that's not what they were really saying. But man, when the grief fog is heavy and I mean, I was doing well just to get my shoes on the right feet. I was doing well to even make it out of the house. And in those moments, you don't always process everything correctly. And I had to wrestle through whether I was diminishing my love for Imogen by standing firm in the belief that God was good. Did I owe her more than that? Did I owe her this grand gesture of love and loyalty to prove how much I cared about her, how much I missed her, how much I ached without her? I had to process through the question, was I letting her down? Because, and this sounds really weird, I know, but maybe somebody will get what I'm saying. I wanted her to be proud of me. I wanted her to be proud that I was her mom, and I I worried that maybe I wasn't heartbroken enough to curse God, and maybe that would make her feel like I didn't love her enough. And I desperately wanted her to know how much I loved her. I didn't want there to be any question that we had moved on too fast. And from the outside, that probably sounds really strange, especially because the people who made those statements were genuinely trying to communicate admiration. And I know that now, and I even knew it at the time, but I had to wrestle through my reaction and decide how I wanted to respond. And ultimately, there wasn't any real question of where we were going to land. Our hearts were spoken for long before Imogen lived and long before she died. And they weren't going anywhere now. But people would ask me, how can you still believe in God? And I would think, how could I not? 
And it reminded me of the story of the disciples in John chapter 6. Jesus had been teaching and he started saying things that sounded really weird. He started saying things that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And he started making these claims that didn't line up with what people expected to see. And his words were beginning to challenge what they believed. And so some of them turned back. They left. Scripture says they no longer wanted to be associated with Jesus. And that felt so familiar to me. What happens when Jesus starts saying and doing things that don't make sense? What happens when our lives don't match our plan? What happens when God is doing things that feel painful and difficult and hard? And it was literally exactly what people were saying to me. They were saying, I couldn't believe in God if he did this to me. If this happened to me, I would turn back when it got too hard. So in the scripture, Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and he gave them an out. He said, what about you? Do you also want to leave? And as I was wrestling with God, as I was worrying that I was letting Imogen down, as I was trying to discern where my loyalty lied, if I was betraying one by loving the other, I remembered Peter's response in John chapter 6. In verses 68 and 69, Peter replied, Master, to whom would we go? You have the words of real life, eternal life. We've already committed ourselves, confident that you are the Holy One of God. And I thought, where else would we go? And guys, at the most basic level, here's my most basic response to the people who are wondering if it's still worth it to follow Jesus. How is not following him any better? If nothing else were true or valuable or right, what do I gain by not following him? My daughter still wouldn't be here. And if I don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if I don't believe he's the son of God, then I don't even get to be reunited with Imogen in heaven. And at the risk of sounding crass, at this point, what did I have to lose? Nobody was offering me anything better. What would it gain me to walk away from Jesus now, to stop believing in his goodness now? And if I do believe those things, if I do believe he's the risen Christ, if I do believe he laid down his life for mine, for yours, for Imogen's, if I do believe that he took on a very bad day, a very painful death, a very horrible hell and turned it all around for good, if I do believe he rose again and conquered death and became our living hope, then how could I not call him good? And so the question wasn't ever really, is he good? The question was, is he God? Because if I believe he is who he says he is, then his goodness is so baked into his nature that you can't separate the two. If he's not good, he's not God. And I read Peter's words, you have the words of real life, eternal life. And I thought right now, in the middle of this deep ache, this deep sadness, this agony and suffering that comes from being separated from your child, there's only one thing in the whole world, in the whole universe, in the whole galaxy that could ever make it feel one drop better. And it's the words of eternal life. That's the only thing that brings any comfort. It's the deep belief that I will get to see Imogen again one day that I'll get to spend an eternity making up time with her, that she is 100% alive right now, and one day I'll be 100% there with her.
So when people ask, how could I believe God is good? How could I not? He has the words of eternal life. And then, I love this, Peter says, We've already committed ourselves, confident that you are the Holy One of God. And I realized I made this decision a long time ago. I was wrestling with it right then, but I'd already made the call, not right here when life was so painfully hard, not when I was so desperate for a lifeline. I had made this decision when I put my trust in God and I'm committed, I'm confident, I'm sold, I'm 100% all in. I'm not a fair weather fan whose loyalty shifts looking for the winning team. I'm on it. There's no decision to make now because I already made it and I'm confident in who he is. But if I needed further evidence, here's where I started to look. Because I knew it to be true, but it didn't always feel true in my life. And so first I started to devour scripture, verse after verse, passage after passage. And over and over again, I found verses talking about God's goodness. But what surprised me is that they most often weren't written from the mountaintop perspective. They weren't written out of the times when life was going perfectly well and according to plan, they were declared in the valley. David writes in Psalm 27, Some people think he wrote this psalm in the middle of the attacks before he became king and others thought he wrote it looking back. But either way, in verses 13 and 14, he says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And the New King James Version says it this way. I would have lost heart unless I had believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I love that. I would have lost heart. I would have given up. I would have let go unless I had believed I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. It was that belief, that trust. It wasn't a hot cocoa and marshmallow declaration. It wasn't about warm fuzzies or rainbows. It was a desperate cry. It was a roar from the depths. It was a groan that said, God, I'm all in. You're the only thing I'm banking on. I would give up right now, except that I believe and I remain confident that I'll see your goodness. So I'm waiting for you. You're it. God, you are all I have and you're the only thing that can make this right. I'm betting it all on you, God. And I know that cry. I know that declaration. I know that groan from the inside because I felt it. That desperation that if this isn't true, nothing else matters. I would have lost heart. I would have given up. I would have let go. Except that. I had to believe I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And then I read Psalm 23, you know, Psalm 23, but verse six says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I studied and learned that the Hebrew word for follow is radaf. It actually means to pursue or chase, to hunt down. And I envisioned God's goodness and mercy running after me like the Bethel song says. Have you sung it? Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. And I would just picture this over and over that his goodness wouldn't let me get away. It wasn't trailing along behind me, always a few steps behind 
It was chasing me. There was nowhere I could outrun it or escape it. And not that I would want to, but I couldn't even if I tried. His goodness was pursuing me all the days of my life, even here, even still, even now, in the darkness and in the valley. And here's what I love about David. His hope rises and his faith is strengthened because he exercises it, because he reminds himself of what's true. He speaks it and he declares it even when he can't see it. And when he can see it, he records it and makes a record of it for when he'll need it again. And then I kept reading and I read about Joseph declaring, you meant this to harm me, but God meant it for good. Joseph, who had lived this painful life where so much was lost and stolen and taken, and Joseph could declare, you meant this to harm me, but God meant it for good. People who had plenty of reason to doubt God's goodness based on the circumstance they faced, they were the very ones who were declaring it, recording it, and submitting to it. So why should I be any different? Why should you? And as I read the word, I had a distinct advantage. Because for most of the people in scripture, we get to read the ending. We get to read chapter after chapter, season after season in their lives. We get to follow the thread that bound it all together. And here's the thing. You can't judge a story based on a single page. You can't judge a story even based on a single chapter or on a chronicle from a larger series. It's only in book seven that you understand Dumbledore's sacrifice in book six. It's only when the famine comes that we see the purpose in Joseph's slavery years before. And it's only because of Sunday that we can call Friday good. So my story right now feels really bad. It feels incredibly broken and incredibly painful. And maybe yours does too. But this is one page, one season, one chapter. And ultimately we know the end. And so I don't want to give up on God's goodness now because over and over again throughout the course of history, I've seen God turn the most horrible circumstances for good. I've seen him redeem people that seemed so far gone. And I've seen him bring beauty out of the hottest ashes. So while I can't see it in my life right now, and maybe you can't either, I'm still going to remind myself of the times I know it to be true. And I'm going to remember that those people didn't know the end. And while they were living in the middle of their story, they didn't know how it was going to turn out either. And when I feel hopeless, I remind myself that Moses probably did too. And so did Joseph. And I know David did because he told us over and over and over and over. And that's the beauty of David's example. Because he models this desperate, all-in, cards-up faith. He is confident he'll see God's goodness in the land of the living. But he also models the struggle, the pain, the lament, the desperation, and the grief. And your sadness doesn't mean God isn't good. Your anguish doesn't replace your belief. 
Your confusion doesn't mean you've walked away, but it does mean you might have to remind yourself what you've known to be true when it doesn't feel that way right now. It does mean you might have to extend God the professional courtesy to let him get where he's going. And it does mean that we might have to remember that we've always believed in a God who uses the most terrible of events and circumstances to bring about the most remarkable good we could imagine. It's always what he's done. And when people tell me they couldn't believe in God if he let this happen to them, full disclosure, guys, I always wonder, the question that comes to mind is, so at what point does the suffering become too personal for you to believe in God? You can believe in a God who allows something terrible to happen as long as it doesn't happen to you. What about your family? What about your best friend? Who's allowed to suffer for God to still be good? Who's allowed to suffer for God to still be good if he's not good when it happens to you? And as hard as it is to grasp, as much as we rightly grieve when it comes our way, if any level of suffering somehow changes God's goodness, then he wasn't ever really good to begin with. And so we decide now and we commit ourselves now so that when the unspeakable trials come, we can say like Peter, we've already committed ourselves, confident that you are the Holy One of God. And if he's God, we know he's good. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Even If. My prayer is that even if your knees are weak, Today's episode offers you enough strength to keep standing firm. See you back here next week for the next episode of Even If.